Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. And now serving our spring drinks. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and Daleville Town Center. Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey everyone, real quick, we just want to thank all of you who voted for Hometown Stories and the Roanoker Magazine's Best of 2023 edition for Best Local Podcast. You, the listeners, awarded us gold. That's awesome. Really. We appreciate each and every download. Did you know you can also rate our show and leave a review? It helps us share the stories of our hometowns with even more people across the country and around the world. After you listen to today's episode, consider leaving us a review, rating the show, and subscribing. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. There's a new book out this week from a man whose mission has become to spend a night in every slave dwelling still standing. In the last 13 years, Joseph McGill Jr. has logged 200 such overnights in more than 25 states. His goal is to bring attention to the buildings and their preservation, but also the stories of the people whose lives were once contained within them. His book, Sleeping with the Ancestors, is co-authored by Herb Frazier, a longtime South Carolina newspaper writer whose other books include writings on Gullah culture. The two met in the 90s, but the Slave Dwelling Project kicked off in 2010 with an overnight stay in an enslaved worker's cabin at Magnolia Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina. McGill's travels have taken him to Southwest Virginia to visit sites like Greenfield, the Booker T. Washington National Monument, and Roanoke College. McGill says it's his DNA and his work with the National Trust for Historic Preservation that sparked the interest in these extant slave dwellings. It was his work as a Civil War reenactor for the all-black 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry that made him want to make his efforts tangible. In this episode of Hometown Stories, I speak with McGill and Fraser about their book, the journey that led them here, and the stories of the ancestors they're working to honor. Joe, do you remember your first overnight as part of this project? Yes, I I do remember my first my first night. It was at Magnolia Plantation and Gardens, where I'm currently employed. I uh, wasn't employed there at the time. Uh, I was a part of a, a team inspecting the restoration work that was being done to the four cabins, and I. I whispered, I, I said out loud that, you know, when this cabin is done, or, we, or when these cabins are done, I'd like to spend the night here. And, and somebody who heard me um, sent it up the chain of command to, and it got to Tom Johnson. Tom Johnson was the director, executive director of Magnolia at the time. He, he, he thought it was a great idea. He got the approval from the Drayton family and, and, uh, that was that first night I committed to. Now, um, 
Of course, prior to, prior to the stay, I, I had obtained a list from the State Historic Preservation Office to see if others would uh, buy into what I was trying to sell them. And it was like sell, trying to sell them something because if you were to get such a request from a, a person, you have to you have to question it, you know. You have to try to you know think about what's what is this guy really asking me? Is is he a ghost hunter? Is, is he looking for, for artifacts and relics, or, um, or, or, or is he seeking reparations? Um, so you got these things go through your head along with other things. Um, but you know, I had to convince these folks, some some of these folks, um, that no, that's not why I'm here. It's about it's about bringing attention to these spaces, and then bringing attention to these spaces. We're acknowledging the fact that you are a good steward of this place. And you allow this place or have the potential to allow this place to tell the stories of, of the enslaved ancestors. By, so by performing this sleeping act, this simple act of sleeping in these places, you know, folks will want to know well, why, why you want to do this. And then I, I, I string that message on them because the places are important. If you save the places, we save the stories of the people. Because if we continue to eliminate those tangible things, then people will easily go into denial because even today there are those who deny the Holocaust and, 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 you know, we, we don't want to go there. What is a typical overnight like? I mean, these are building, these are old buildings, obviously. Um, most of them, I, from my understanding are fairly small. Can you describe for us what an overnight is like? Have you established a ritual at this point as to kind of how you approach an overnight in a dwelling? No ritual. Um, you know, at the beginning, there were those who, who who would want to pour libations to the ancestors, and I would allow that uh, by first explaining to the to the entire group those who were not familiar with the process, because there came a point where um, there were all there were white folks that that were joining us in these uh, in, in these sleepovers and. Uh, you know, for that, uh, we that kind of morphed into having a conversation before the sleepover. Kind of first, people were coming for the sleepover experience itself. In in, in that alone, this thing has now evolved into um, uh, you know to more than that. The, the, these conversations, but initially, um, the night what I, what I learned from sleeping in Magnolia at Magnolia Plantation was. Just bringing a sleeping bag and a pillow was just not enough. I had to bring a padding, a sleeping bag and a pillow. And it only took that one night for me to figure that out. Um, so when I when I travel, when I drive, when I drive to these places, I bring I got my kit already in the suitcase. I could go in the I could go into that uh, closet right now and grab it and just just drop it in my vehicle and drive to where I need to go. And I have all of my sleeping gear for the night. It's, it's all in that in that place. Um, so, and the, so these places differ. Some of these places are ready for prime time, as in, you know, people come to visit them on a on a on a daily basis. Well, the days that they're open and, and, and that they're serving at purpose. Some of these places are privately owned. Some are owned by, um, as far as the ones that you visit, uh, the one the place I work is a family owned business. It's always been a family owned business. Uh, some are, not, uh, are owned by nonprofits. Some are owned by the the, the city, the state. The uh, some are national parks. So 
the ownership varies from place to place. Therefore, the use varies from, from place to place. I've stayed in some places. I didn't need to bring sleeping gear because, you know, some of these places, uh, people are using them for guest houses, um, uh, bed and breakfasts. And so there are lots of uses for these places. And I've, I've, I've stayed in the all extreme dirt floors to um, quality up to air control um, in inside the space. Herb, at what point did you look at Joe and say, I think we need to write a book about what what we're doing here? Well, that came much, much later because um, Joe will tell you that um, I think you engaged with a couple other people who had the idea of a book. And I was already involved in my own uh, work on another book. And plus I had a full-time job. And so I didn't want to force, basically force myself into a discussion into a book. And, and I watched, and as some of those other efforts did not materialize, I approached Joe and I think we had our first meeting in, in 2017 about doing a book. And we started talking about outlining the book uh, and how would we approach it. And quite frankly, I think it was the pandemic that really uh, led to uh, giving me at least the time just to devote to putting on the book. I knew Joe had a great story to tell. He had um, a wealth of blogs that he had written but they served, those blogs served as the nucleus around which we could expand the story to bring in the voices of some of the other people who spent the night with him uh, in these spaces, those people who own some of those places. I interviewed them. And of course, each one of those places had its own unique history. And, and most important, looking at the archives uh, and bringing into the story the voices of the enslaved, because after all, this is that was paramount. We wanted to tell the stories and have the enslaved people tell their stories in their own voices, because when they were alive, they weren't allowed to do so in many cases. And so this is our opportunity to uh, honor them and put whatever happened within the context of their experiences. Are there any of those stories that you bring a voice to in this book that really stand out to you that you that you are excited for readers to hear about? Is there any one particular person or family story that you give voice to that has through this process resonated with you most? Well, I think the one that resonates with me most is because I'd written a book about the AME church and the unfortunate events at Mother Emanuel. Uh, I co-wrote a book called We Are Charleston Tragedy and Triumph at Mother Emanuel. And without giving up, giving away too much information, too much of the story in the book that Joe and I have produced, um, we have in this book, Sleeping with, the Anster, Sleeping with the Ancestors, How I Followed the Footprints of Slavery, we have a story that dovetails with the uh, founding of the AME Church. So... For me, that resonated since I grew up in Mother Emanuel as a kid in Charleston, and and then coming across this account of one of the church's early founders, 
because at that time, Joe had spent, I believe it was Joe, that was Joe's first overnight stay in a northern state in Pennsylvania. Because up until that point, he had spent much of his time in the South. And so here he is in a northern city and and sleeping in a slave dwelling. And so we were able to bring in that story of one of the founders of the AME, AME Church. And another story that resonates, too, is, is the unusual story of a, a woman from what is now modern-day Senegal who was sold into slavery and in Cuba and brought to northern northeastern Florida uh, by her owner, uh, an English Quaker. And over time, the, 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 the white English Quaker married her and she became a plantation owner and has her own uh, uh, set of slaves, enslaved people. It's, it's, it's not as simple as it sounds, and it's, not, it's very, a very complex story, and we tell the story of how this particular family had to flee the United States, or at that time what was uh, um, uh, Florida, um, rural Florida, the wilderness of Florida, to avoid being re-enslaved. Uh, and then the, uh, this woman ultimately came back to Florida and regained ownership of the property that she and her husband controlled before she was forced to flee and uh, and uh, flee to Haiti. So there's several very, I think, compelling stories we have in the book of how people, enslaved people, uh, in spite of their enslavement, uh, were very uh, accomplished at poetry and, and literature. Um, um, uh, one gentleman who was enslaved by a, a U.S. president wrote his book, wrote a memoir of being enslaved by this U.S. president. We won't tell you which one. Uh, so, uh, so, and then there are some stories of just some regular people. And there's, there's one compelling story of a man who who tells a story of how when he was born, his mother gave birth to him while in the cotton field, while she was picking cotton. And he came into the world, the women around her took care of the birth, took care of the baby, and the mother went right back to work, you know. So those are some of the stories that we, we bring forth of, of, of the experiences that the, our ancestors had during their periods of enslavement in this country. Can you tell us what you remember about some of the sites that you visited in Virginia? I know in Southwest Virginia, the ones that I know of, you know, we've got the Booker T. Washington Been there, yes. Monument. We have Greenfield. I think you've Been. come to run a college before. I, yes, I did. What do you recall um, about those times? Well, I certainly recall Botetot because because they they were they were proposing to do and they did. <clears throat> they move they moved the slave line from its original spot. You know, we as preservationists, we would prefer those buildings stay where they were built. Um, but, you know, there comes a time when all the time, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. Uh, and I guess the, the, the next alternative is to is to move it. Um, but we we were there at the point where the, the moving had already started, meaning that they had already uplifted this thing onto its platform that, that, that was going to move it. And we were there at that juncture because there was another building that they had not yet touched, but they was going to, it was going to suffer the same fate. Um, so 
that's where we were and at, at a at a at a town hall meeting and it was like it was like you know the preservationists it was the county the supervisors were there and Terry James was there and 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 Crystal Rawson was there herb herb met her um so yeah we've um uh, it was so I remember that that one certainly stands out now Roanoke College they that was uh, I remember that uh, that we stayed in a house, a place on the campus that was not yet finished um, because right inside the building, there was still people, not people. There were still open spaces where you could just see the ground. Um, but part of that had floors. And, and I think uh, uh, I think about five or six people slept in that building that night. We had some living history. Um, that we did. I I met Kelly Kelly Dietz for the for the first time. She used to be employed there, and she uh, made the first attempt to get me to Roanoke College, and it never materialized. She left Roanoke College, but she was coming back for a program which included me. So I met her for the first time. Um, so that was uh, uh, that that was that was interesting. You you mentioned a third one. Um, um, Booker T. Washington. Yeah, Booker T. Washington National Park Service site. That's a that's a recreated cabin that they have there, that uh, that we slept in. The, we didn't have a, a a large audience there um, that weekend. I I remember a, a gentleman complaining. He was a he was a foreign doctor. He's either from I think he was from India, and um, he said he said you know before be, be before Trump was elected, he was they his he and his family was pretty much unnoticed. But then Trump got elected, and they noticed a lot of uh, racist tendencies of people towards them started to um, rear its ugly head. So I remember that. How many dwellings have you slept in total? Oh, about about two hundred in twenty five wow. states and the District of Columbia. Um, it, you know, more sleepovers because a lot of these places have been repeats. So much so that I, I, I'm, I'm kind of opting out of sleepovers now. If I can opt out of it, I went to Natchez, Mississippi, uh, about a month ago, and they told me that I was going to be sleeping in the historic site all by myself, alone. And I said, man, you know, if you can get me a second night in that in that hotel, that grand hotel on the waterfront, um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take that instead. And that's and that's the deal I took. Now I got to go to um I got to go to Alabama next weekend and I try and I offer them that deal they they won't they didn't bite so I'll I'll be sleeping in the site at the site uh, but about two hundred or so in twenty five states in the District of Columbia. Do you have any I guess like any places that you are still yearning to go that are still on your list that you'd really like to make it to? Yeah, the White House ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, we've made that request um, so far to no avail, but we're hoping that this book may influence someone that can get us in there. Uh, one of our endorsers is uh, Representative uh, Clyburn uh, from the state, great state of South Carolina. Um, so that might uh, turn some heads, that might give us a notice. Um, yeah, so ultimately there. What has been the most tangible outcome of 
either an overnight or attention that you have brought to a dwelling. Um, I know you've probably raised general awareness maybe among the communities where you go and travel to, but what for you has been sort of, yeah, one of the most tangible changes that you have seen following one of your visits? Um, more Black folks interacting with those spaces um, and, and more of those spaces willing to interact with, with the descendants of those who were enslaved there. Um, that very thing played itself out in public at uh, a very well-known site, a very, a very a familiar site, popular site at uh, Montpelier, the home of, of James Madison, where they uh, proclaimed on paper and said out loud that they were going to uh, put on their governing board descendants of those who were enslaved there. It, it sounded good, looked good on paper, but then they put it to practice. And then the uh, the element of white folks in charge, um, we wanted to renege. Um, and because all that played out in public, they had to su succumb. I'm sure the other reason they had to succumb to the fact that um, they needed to just go ahead and do the right thing. And, and since then, they have done the right thing. So, you know, I, I think that's a tangible thing in, in letting folks know that um, enslaved people existed on these places and their story should be included into the narrative, even if this, uh, you know, we have to brawl it out in public then um, then we, we just, we'll just do that. We, we, exp we ex expose these sites, you know, for, for what they are. If they want to continue to uh, sugarcoat that history, then we'll put them out, put them out on Front Street. Um, and this book that, that we wrote is, is a part of that pro process. And, and, and you know, and, and what's more tangible than this, this thing I'm holding in my hand right now and, uh, you know, being proud that, that Herb Frazier uh, played the role that he did to ensure that uh, uh, this this came in in you know came into being came to fruition because the idea of sleeping is a is a catchy idea but you know by itself to exist in a manner I think I, I think putting it on paper into eighty five thousand words is not my specialty. And um, so that's why this tangible book that was created is going to help tell the story. And I must say that I am I am honored that Joe allowed me to uh, tell his incredible story of his fortitude and his devotion to telling the stories of the ancestors. Because I, you know, compared to him, I I've only spent maybe three nights in slave cabins with him, twice at Magnolia and once at Mount Vernon, and so. Uh, I, I'm nowhere near uh, having having racked up the the number of nights on those hard floors that he has. But um, but you know it's it's a it's a rare person and it's a very devoted person who could withstand uh, that and sustain that over 13 years. It's an incredible feat. I was going to ask if you had ever accompanied him and and kind of what your experience was like. The three times that I've done this, I, I've, I've laid there in my sleeping bag and I've tried to envision if I had been an enslaved person, what might I have, what would I have been thinking about? Would I have been trying to plot some kind of an escape? And each time that's the, that, those are the 
things that I was thinking about. How would I get away from wherever I was at that time? And uh, how far would I get? And um, I know I would not have been a good, <laughs> a good, a good person to have in, 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 in bondage. I would have been plotting and thinking and scheming and trying to think of every possible way to get away and get free. Yeah. Now it's easy for me to say in the 21st century and looking back and saying that, but if, if my temperament, if I had the same temperament that I had now at back then, I know that I would have either been punished, killed, or I would have been successful in my escape. Joe, what, what is it that you think of when you're laying in your sleeping bag in some of these dwellings? Uh, <clears throat> I think about, think about bloodhounds and, and, and the fact that, um, you know, I see bloodhounds today. I, I, I wonder if they descended from bloodhounds that once chased enslaved people. I think about escape. I think that's a common, that, that, that's a, a, a common thought process, a, a thought line, because uh, like Herb, um, once upon a time before I started this project, uh, I thought if I was like someone of that period, it would have been Frederick Douglass. But then I went on a tour of um, Nat Turner's slave revolt and and understanding that the fact this gentleman was a was a preacher he could read and write he could interpret the bible and what he interpreted was slavery was just wrong it's, it was just wrong and in that 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 led him that led him to revolt um and i probably would not have been Matt Turner, but I would have been in his camp um, following his lead. Um, so, yeah, you know, you think about, certainly you, you think about it, escape mainly. Um, so, yeah, that's what permeates my mind. Now, of course, the, the, that was more of the time I was sleeping in these spaces alone. Now I, I very seldom sleep in these spaces alone. So, you know, it's usually some conversation with someone before one of us drifts off to sleep. So there's that. What do you hope when people pick up this book? What do you hope that they get out of it? Hopefully they'll see these folks as humans and have some empathy. Uh, that, they're, that, that, that we also address the issue of how, um, you know, the pseudoscience that was created to portray people of African descent as subhuman, which at that time it was used to justify slavery. And slavery obviously was a very important economic uh, engine to, to, to build this country. And the free labor of our enslaved ancestors supported that enterprise. And so I hope people can see that recognize the exploitation of people of African descent, but also it did not destroy them. And they went on to produce great things. And, you know, African-Americans in the United States are a byproduct of that today. Joe, same question. What what do you hope people get out of the book? I hope that um, 
people will be more attentive to the built environment. Um, there, are, there are a lot of places that are on this landscape that can help tell that story, tell that story that, that you know, that may strike fear into some um, because it, it, it tells the story of how their ancestors may have been on the wrong side of history. But it also has the opposite um, uh, effect be, uh, by telling the stories of those whose ancestors were enslaved, you know, letting them know that um, these people had agency, these people were human, despite what the laws said, despite what their owners thought about them, despite what the people of the cloth um, tried to use to justify to enslave them. So despite all that they were trying to do to um, think of them as, as less human, um, in, in throwing around terms about them as, as three-fifths, are, um, are, are bringing about terms into the vocabulary like drapetomania, um, the propensity to run away and calling it a mental condition and not uh, taking into account that um, it, it is the possibility of being torn apart from your family or, or being whipped or, or seeing the lady that you love being taken advantage of by your enslavers or, or, or someone white. Um, all those things they didn't factor in to the desire for an enslaved person to run away are not benefiting from the fruits of your labor. Um, so they just disregarded all that and say, well, this is a mental condition and we call it drapetomania, the propensity to run away. Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, bringing light to the fact that that's, these people were, were human, but, you know, we got to first save the buildings to then delve into those elements of the story. Also tying in the fact that slavery was not just a Southern thing. Um, you know, that's that place where my education left me. My, uh, they left me in a, in, in a place they should not have. They left me in a place that made me think that my ancestors were less than, less than, uh, they were deserving of the fate that they endured. Um, I had to, I had to purge my mind of all that and do my own research and, uh, you know, to find out that I'm, I'm from a proud past and, um, uh, uh, my ancestors voices were muted when they were here on this earth. And as we, Herb and I, I think both alluded to the fact that this book speaks for them. It's, 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 it's their voice is their voices that, that, that are in this book is, uh, uh you know, we are not going to go back to that place uh, where they uh, include in their narrative that ignorance of our enslaved ancestors being happy, um, our enslaved ancestors being, uh, or the, their enslavers being benevolent. Now, if they want to interpret them as being happy, um, then they're going to have to interpret the fact that um, you know, that, that, that little small snippet of happiness that they may have been able to squeeze out of that life, it, it, it came with much more, much more enduring of sadness and pain. Um, so, 
yeah, we want this we, we want this book to tell that story. And uh, I think we did a I think we did a, did a good job by by stitching it all together. You know, tying in this northern portion of history because I I still get a lot of pushback from northerners when I talk about slavery and what I do and the fact that the 25 and the 25 states is that states that I've gone to sleep in slave dwellings, eight of them have been northern states. And and then I tell them about, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin. And, and then we go to into the places I've stayed, the de- some of the details of, of, of where I stayed. And um, so the book now is, is kind of, it's going to increase the audience, it's going to increase the reach of uh, of, of, of where we can go. At any point in, in each of your respective work in this project, and, and maybe I'm getting sort of, you know, metaphysical here, but do you ever sit and think that if the ancestors could see what you're doing, could read what you're writing, could know what you're doing and the impact that it's having, do you ever allow yourself to imagine how they would react or what they would think? Well, I can, in my own personal experience, I can only extrapolate or project in the past what um, what the ancestors would say. I think they would be very, very proud because I know as a young reporter in the early 70s, um, working for predominantly white-owned newspapers, uh, daily newspapers in the South, newspapers that up until that time maybe had maybe one or two Black reporters, I know that when I when I was reporting on a story, no matter where, where I was in the city I was in, I think Black people in, in those communities were quite proud to see a Black person break through that barrier and work for the uh, white-owned newspaper. I know that my father uh, could, couldn't quite understand why I wanted to work for the then News and Courier uh, in Charleston, which is now the Post and Courier, because he, in 1955, wanted to burn the building down because of its editorial stance on segregation. But, you know, times change, and I think he came around, and I think he was quite proud that his son, uh, although I didn't go into the Navy like he wanted me to do because he had spent 23 years of his life in the military, I didn't go into the Navy. I think he was proud that I at least I was working in an in industry. And he couldn't quite, as an aside, he couldn't quite understand and uh, what I did. And he said, they pay you to do what now? <laughs> to write? They pay you to, you know, so, you know, because, you know, folks of that generation, you had to produce something that was tangible. Well, we produced a tangible, a physical newspaper, and that's what we got paid to do. So, but he couldn't equate the two, you know, how you get paid to do, do this pr- produce this newspaper on a daily basis. So I think Black people in the 20th century who went through Jim Crow, who fought and protested during the civil rights movement, who were proud of African-American journalists who broke into the uh, uh, media companies across this country, they were proud of us. And I think, conversely, I think our ancestors looking out now from their 19th century position or looking at us now in the 21st century, on Joe and I are proud that we're we're giving voice to their experience. Oh yeah, <clears throat> ancestors would be proud. Uh, and uh, a lot of folks ask me, do I I try to commune? Uh, and I also always say no. Um, but uh, but I think if that was indeed possible, um, and it is in in 
in the minds of some. Uh, I think that the ancestors, you know, would give us a, a thumbs up and, and encourage us to, you know, to keep going. Uh, because what, what we're doing, what we're doing right now is we're, we're, we're integrating their story into this narrative, into this change that's coming here in the United States, this demographic shift that's happening, you know, uh, there's going to be a time maybe in your lifetime where, you know, whites are not going to be the majority anymore. Now, the majority will be composed of a lots of others, but the point is whites will not be the majority. So I think that, you know, what this project is doing is is ensuring that the stories of the ancestors are going to be disseminated in a manner with a respect, you know, well-researched respect. McGill and Frazier's book, Sleeping with the Ancestors, is now available. Joe has also recorded an audiobook version. He continues to travel to slave dwellings. You can visit slavedwellingproject.org to see where he's traveling next. Next week on the Hometown Stories podcast, we'll step back in time to the late 19th century when an ordinary mountain midwife left behind an extraordinary legacy. The more you learn, the more you want to find out. Shelby and Raleigh Puckett introduce us to Aunt Orlean Puckett, a woman whose life, lore, and legacy they're working to preserve. She delivered both my mother and dad. She's sort of a legend in this area. Together, we take a drive on the Blue Ridge Parkway to learn about resilient mountain living and the efforts this family is taking to keep a memory alive. So we're hoping that we've got enough stuff here that people will be remembering these puckets for a long, long time. (laughs) That story next week on Hometown Stories. Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.